0: Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. As Donald Trump flirts with exploiting the marital habits of a former president at the second presidential debate in order to harm the presidential candidacy of that former president's wife, a former first lady, Hillary Clinton, we can be assured that one of the things that we are smelling is freshly plowed territory. But in the history of the White House spousal mixing, where the presidential, the personal and the political all jumble in the dryer with the softener sheet, there is another instance I was reminded of, which is not analogous at all, but which does come to mind, a situation in which a presidential spouse for a moment became the political flashpoint of. Of Washington politics because of what she said about the personal lives of the first couple and their family. It was a spouse who talked openly about her children trying drugs, how she might have tried marijuana, how she would counsel her teenage daughter 18 years old if she were to have an affair. And how, as a spouse and first lady, she defended her husband's wandering eye by explaining that it never wandered too far off the beam because she was able to keep him happy and busy at home. Now, that's not a compilation of provocative statements made over the course of a tenure of a first lady. All of that was said in a tidy package in a single 60 Minutes interview that Betty Ford did in the summer of 1975. Our whistle stop today is August 10th, 1975, and First Lady Betty Ford is seated on a couch in the West sitting hall of the White House, across from 60 Minutes newsman Morley Safer, who's looking rakish and devilish across from her on the couch. And we're, we're what we're watching is actually on the television in August. It was actually uh, the interview was recorded in the third week of July. That Mrs. Ford was even on. the television was a bit of a thing as a newsmaking interview as opposed to a kind of sideline story. She was on there. Uh, because she was seen as a specially and particularly candid first lady. And so the interview starts on that candid note. She had her own views, her own politics, and they were sometimes at odds with the politics of her husband. Here's how the broadcast began. I told my husband, if we have to go to the White House, okay, I will go. But I'm going as myself, and it's too late to change my pattern, And if they don't like it, then they'll just have to throw me out. It was the perfect quote to start the interview that would cause such a stir, though 60 Minutes producers knew what they were doing. What did it mean for Betty Ford to be herself? It meant that she was going to be the same woman who had fought and survived breast cancer on the public stage. A year before the 60 Minutes interview, Betty Ford and her husband had been thrust into the White House after Richard Nixon's impeachment and resignation. Less than two months after. Nixon tootled on up to the stairs of his helicopter, flashed the peace signs, and flew off to San Clemente. Betty Ford was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she was diagnosed, she went with a friend who was also getting a regular checkup. They discovered the lump in Betty Ford's breast, and she was told it had to be operated on the very next day. She was pulled into the uh, operating room, looked up at her anesthetist, and said, Good night, sweet prince. Breast cancer at the time was the leading killer of women between the ages of 40 and 45 years old, but only half the women were being treated. Why? Because cancer wasn't even the kind of thing you mentioned in someone's obituary if they died from cancer. You certainly didn't talk about breasts and women in public in a kind of way that would be, uh, there. it was just too taboo. And suddenly the first lady is being photographed in the hospital room, recovering from breast cancer, talking about it, and the, In fact, she was photographed throwing a football given to her by the Washington Redskins coach, George Allen, throwing a football down the hallway to her husband. Suddenly, the evening news started carrying stories about women and breast cancer screenings, and there were lines of people of women getting checked out. Happy Rockefeller, the wife of the vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, went to go get checked up and found that she had breast cancer. And there was story after story like this started coming out. And this was a pivot for Betty Ford, for whom candor had been a disaster, really, in the beginning of the Ford presidency. She'd come into the White House and explained that she and her husband would be sharing the same bedroom, which seems normal enough to us today. But the moralists didn't like the idea of the first couple canoodling. Then she said that she thought that there should be abortion rights. That also was not popular. But with breast cancer, suddenly what she was saying or or just even doing by being photographed and having this out in the public was having this amazingly salutary effect. And here's the way she wrote about it in her autobiography. Lying in the hospital, thinking of all those women going for cancer checkups because of me, I'd come to recognize more clearly the power of the woman in the White House. Not my power, but the power of the position. A power which could be used to help. Women were writing into her to explain how her experience had touched them and their experiences. Men had written in too women, men who were married to women who had had mastectomies were writing in and saying that they still loved their wives. They were bucking up the first lady. She saw the way in which the office and her public wrestling with her diagnosis and treatment had created a connection with the country, had given voice to people who felt excluded, had given comfort to people who felt. Alone. Suddenly, the candor that was a part of Betty Ford's whole life had this bigger public aspect to it. I was amazed, she wrote, that I was now this important person. So now we step back and we connect the personal story of Betty Ford and her increasing discovery of the power of candor in her own role as first lady with two larger societal forces. The first, of course, is Watergate. Nixon. And with the Vietnam War, Johnson before him had uh, increased the idea about an imperial presidency in which the president uses the powers of the office to wall himself off and take the country in the wrong direction, where the people have no power to see what the president is doing or to hold him to account. The idea that that because of secrecy and and because the presidency was closed off, the country was going in the wrong direction. So when the Fords come in, Ford, elevated when Agnew had to step down, was still living in his Alexandria house. So they did interviews with him in his kitchen that looked like everybody else's kitchen. He was regular Gerald Ford, a person who was elevated by Nixon because he knew he could get him confirmed by Congress where Nixon had a great many friends. Nixon had made deals with Johnson. Johnson used to say, you're a great fellow, you're just in the wrong party. And now Betty Ford, with her candor, Breaking the mold of the White House years in Watergate, where it was all secrecy and walled off. Now, the larger societal force is also going on. The second larger societal force going on, obviously, is the rise of feminism. And in that context, in the rise of feminism, was the movement to make the personal political. Laura Coleman writes about this in her book, Right Star Rising, which is a great book about the rise of the conservative movement inside the Republican Party. And the argument from feminists was that when women shared their personal stories, it gave broader power to women. So Betty Ford was discovering in her own personal experience what was being promoted as a political movement in in the broader context. And here's how Coleman writes about it. What had once seemed individual personal problems stood exposed as common shaped by the societal, political, economic, and cultural institutions that kept women subordinate to men. So there is a larger conversation going on about women, their personal struggles, and how they've been shaped and occluded by a male-dominated world, or a world in which they were expected to behave in a certain fashion. So this larger political movement is happening. At the same time, Betty Ford is having her own personal political discovery. So now back to the 60 Minutes interview. So the 60-minute interview takes place, and basically Betty Ford has realized through personal experience and national mood that candor is the order of the day. So the action starts almost immediately with Safer, who asks if she thinks her husband has ever had an affair. Now, first, a little detour. Can you imagine asking that now of a first lady So this is 1975, and the sexual revolution is in full swing. So, hey, it's everybody's groovy, and uh, the pill is in full swing. It's pre-AIDS. The strictures of the 50s and early 60s have come off. Everything is open. But when you think about the personal and the political, Gary Hart has made the case that after his race in 1988, in which he was exposed for having an alleged affair with Donna Rice, that the press has been on a precipitous decline, getting ever more interested in the personal lives of presidents. That was certainly true from 88 to 92, although in 1992, Bill Clinton was a bit of a special case. I would argue that after 88 and 92, the press inquiry into the personal lives of the candidates actually fell pretty dramatically. It doesn't mean the press was any less obsessed with the superficial and the meaningless, but it's just the superficial and meaningless things about personal behavior weren't really at the centerpiece. Think of all the people who ran for president this year. We don't know anything about their personal lives. There wasn't, you know, intense investigation into the personal peccadilloes of the candidates. You've had candidates like Rudy Giuliani and Newt Gingrich, who had plenty to cover, and Donald Trump, who had plenty to cover in their sex lives that largely went uncovered. So if it's hard to make the case that from 88 forward, the press became more obsessed with the personal sexual lives of leading figures. What if you went backwards from 88 to, say, 1975, when Morley Safer can sit down and ask among the first three questions to a first lady whether her husband has ever had an affair? And by the way, there was no evidence that he had. It was just like one of the questions you would ask, like, where do you vacation in the summer? Anyway, that was the nature of the time. I mean, so think about this. <laughs> you couldn't ask Bess Truman if her husband was having an affair. It just wasn't part of the culture. In fact, this is exactly what you would get if you asked Bess Truman if there were any women messing around in her backyard, if you know what I mean. Some woman came into the backyard and started picking all my beautiful white tulips. One of the um, men on the place went down to... Um Asked her just what she thought she was doing, and she said, "Oh, she didn't think Mrs. Truman cared. She took some of her tulips. <laughs> fine thing. After all, oh, our- she helped herself. She took all she wanted. Yeah, that's a fine thing after all the work you did on them. Yeah, doesn't it?" Anyway, when asked about Mister Ford, Missus Ford admitted that Gerald liked to look at a pretty girl. Indeed, it turns out that Ford was a bit of a Jack the Lad. if I'm using that term correctly, which I might not be, but I've always liked the term, so I'm going to use it here and we'll correct it in the American Academy of Sciences commemorative version of this podcast. Here's an example of Ford and his wandering eye. There was a state dinner and there was a young Mexican singer named Vicky Carr. Now, Vicky Carr was very attractive and she was dancing with Ford. It was a very dancey administration. As Betty Ford wrote in her autobiography, she had been a dancer. In fact, uh, had been a dancer in in New York City, in the Martha Graham Dance Company, trying to be a professional dancer, but ultimately gave it up. But anyway, they did a lot of dancing, and Ford is dancing with the Mexican bombshell singer Vicky Carr, and she, looking for small talk with the president, innocently asks him, what's your favorite Mexican dish? At which point Ford says, you are. Mrs. Ford, witnessing this, and being told perhaps this later, is apparently reported to have said, that woman is never coming into my house again. Thus, mankind was deprived of the ability to spread the rumor about a liaison between Vicky Carr and Gerald Ford with all kinds of automotive puns. Ford's favorite model is a car, and so forth. Anyway, that puts the scene also, by the way. Remember the scene from the 1976 presidential debate between Carter and Ford, and they're checking out the microphones beforehand, and Ford is asked to speak into his microphone before the debate goes on live? And he chooses to say, to test the microphone, that the stage manager, who is a woman, is a very attractive stage manager. Now, I thought he was throwing shade at Carter, who had, had just had his Playboy interview published in which he talked about lusting in his heart after other women. But it turns out that Ford wasn't just saying something to kind of tweak Carter. He was a fellow luster. It was a debate among the lusters. And can you think of two people who conjure images of lustiness less Then Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, and yet this was the time. Everybody was unburdening themselves of their innermost uh, lustiness and pointing out on the map and to passersby the things and people about whom they lusted. In any event, back on planet Earth, when Safer asked... Mrs. Ford, this question, do you ever have any doubts about your husband and some of the attractions in this city? First of all, isn't that a lovely way to ask that question? Some of the attractions in this city? Yes, by God, I'm terrified of what what he might do with the Jefferson Memorial. Anyway, Mrs. Ford knew very well what he was trying to get at, and so she responded this way. When he stops looking, then I'm going to begin to worry <laughs> But right now, he still enjoys a pretty girl. And uh, he really doesn't have time for outside entertainment. Because I keep him busy. <laughs> she keeps him busy. va 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 boom. Anyway, this was just the beginning of things. Next, Safer asks about psychiatric help that Mrs. Ford has sought. And she admits that he she sought help. and And she says this. I found it very helpful because apparently I was... Really giving too much of myself and not taking any time out for Betty. It was all going to the children and my husband, and consequently, I was a little beaten down, and he built up my ego. So, pause for a moment on that answer and circle it in your workbook. We're going to come back to it. A first lady talking about the depression that came from giving too much to her family and husband and losing her sense of ego. Remember what's happening more broadly, women speaking publicly about their personal travails and other women suffering from the same things, gaining strength from that and that becoming a political movement. But back to the interview. Then the interview gets into the more newsmaking, stirring portion. Mrs. Ford reiterated her support for abortion rights and praised Roe versus Wade as taking abortion out of the back rooms to a lot of feminists. No issue was more important in terms of illustrating this political nature of the personal than laws that restricted their reproductive rights. So she's gone from talking about psychiatry and her own personal struggle now to abortion. She hasn't had an abortion, but she's now in a political topic area in which the personal and political is at the white hot center of that set of public political issues for feminists. Of course, it was not her husband's position to be a supporter of abortion rights, nor was uh, Mrs. Ford's support for the Equal Rights Amendment, something that Gerald Ford supported publicly. So this should already shock your ears. You have a first lady speaking about two things that are central to the politics of women in America, where she holds positions that are different from her husband. We just wouldn't see that today. And if the positions were different— as it might have been with Laura Bush and Barbara Bush, they never spoke it out loud. Everybody had to just guess about it. So this was not a first lady with a, quote, paste on smile, as Mrs. Ford used to refer to the jobs requirements. In fact, she had called state legislatures and lobbied for the ERA. And this, of course, had driven her husband's political advisors nuts when she was out there arguing in support of the ERA, which would have prevented the federal government or states from denying equality of rights under the law on account of sex. People picketed the White House because she was doing this. At this point, Ford's uh, political advisors sent a memo to the first lady saying, you know, we'd like to be consulted in a- advance when you, whenever you engage in, quote, activities intended to influence the public on legislation. And Jerry Ford was once asked about this by a reporter, and he admitted he was a little frustrated. Have you ever said to your wife, why do you have to be so revealing, so honest? And then he replied, I've told her a million times, it has no impact. When top aide Dick Cheney said, you know, maybe Mrs. Ford can cool it to Gerald Ford, he said, well, you go and tell her. Cheney never took up the suggestion. But then came perhaps the most talked about portion of the interview, which was a conversation between Safer and Ford, uh, about what Mrs. Ford's reaction would be if she found out that her daughter, Susan, who was living with them in the White House and was 18, uh, what she would do if she found out that she was having an affair. Now, we should always uh, already note that she has said she assumed that her kids smoked marijuana and that she would have smoked marijuana probably if she were that age too, experimented with it the way you would with cigarettes or, or your first beer. But here's what she says when she's asked if, what would happen if her daughter came to her and told her she was having an affair. Well, I wouldn't be surprised, Mrs. Ford said. I think she's a perfectly normal human being like all young girls. If she wanted to continue, and I would certainly counsel and advise her on the subject, and I'd want to know pretty much about the young man that she was planning to have the affair with, whether it was a worthwhile encounter or whether it was going to be one of those, she's pretty young to start affairs, safer interrupts, but nevertheless, old enough. Oh yes, she's a big girl. I mean, says Safer, would it surprise you, though, given the way the way you brought up these kids and the president brought them up? Would it surprise you if that happened, Mrs. Ford? No, I think there's a complete freedom among young people now. And in some cases, I'm not sure that perhaps there would be less divorce. So, Susan Ford, marijuana, abortion, her husband's possible wandering eye. This was a turducken of trouble. Political trouble, that is, for the White House. And the, the judgments came fast and furious from conservative quarters. Here's the Manchester Union leader writing, The immorality of Mrs. Ford's remarks is almost exceeded by their stupidity. A disgusting spectacle. Coming from the First Lady in the White House, it disgraces the nation itself. And one lady wrote in and said, Have we not the right to expect a more genteel, lofty moral code in the woman who willingly... Or not represents American womanhood. And this is coming, by the way, from uh, John Robert Greene's book, Betty Ford, Candor and Courage in the White House. But it didn't stop there. Another person wrote in and said, You don't understand. You are constitutionally required to be perfect, wrote this correspondent. Here's how the National Review weighed in, which sounds incredibly. Quaint, given the kinds of conversations we're having in the politics of 2016, the National Review wrote, obviously, it is possible to take issue with Mrs. Ford on the merits of each of these points, but her statements were not made in private conversation or friendly argument. And the issue is therefore one of propriety. As First Lady, Mrs. Ford enjoys a wide audience and some cultural power. This circumstance implicitly prescribes a sense of restraint. Mrs. Ford ought to know that it is not up to her to rewrite the Ten Commandments over nationwide TV. At the very least, she ought to realize that many Americans entertain very different convictions on drug use and abortion, and indeed regard the latter as, in fact, murder. Awareness of this would enjoin minimum good manners. Mrs. Ford's lobbying efforts in connection with cabinet and court nominations do not require comment though she certainly owes Secretary Carla Hills an apology for claiming credit for her appointment. In the 60 Minutes interview, Mrs. Ford said she had lobbied her husband to have a woman on a uh, top position in his administration. Back to the National Review. What Mrs. Ford's behavior suggests on this and previous occasions is not so much a beguiling candor as the desire to exploit her position in order to establish a particular public personality, the trademark of which is the outrageous and newsy statement. She ought to have more respect for her position in the nation than to use it that way. So we talk a lot about political correctness in the current political context. Well, we have speech police on both the left and the right. This is speech police from the right. Of course, her son Steve Ford said that the reaction was that uh, the country tried to fire her. But there were some pro um, Betty Ford signs that showed up out in front of the White House. One said, Jerry played football, but Betty knows the score. Ford on the stump tried to explain what I think was true was that Betty Ford was trying to explain in that interview, particularly with respect to her daughter, that she had an open kind of communication, that she was going to not kind of lay down the law with her own daughter. And this became a problem for Dan Quayle and John McCain when they were asked the abortion question about their daughters and basically said that it was a choice for them, which, of course, is what liberals had been claiming, that this should be a choice. And, and the, the correct answer that conservative social conservatives wanted to hear was I would say absolutely not and and be more forceful in pushing back. So Gerald Ford said his wife was just trying to be, but Ford, by the way, privately had quipped, you just lost me 10 million votes. And then he laughed and said, no, maybe 20 million. So he went out and tried to, uh, Clean things up a little bit. And this then caught him the ire of feminists, including Kitty Dukakis, who was then the first lady of Massachusetts, who took Ford to task by saying she, quote, felt betrayed when I read that President Ford felt it necessary to articulate his wife's views. Quote, I feel Mrs. Ford articulated what many of us have found refreshing. Meanwhile, by the way, Susan Ford had to speak up and say, well, she wasn't really planning on having any affairs. Uh, Just straighten that up. But then she said, uh, quote, imagine a teenager having your mother support your right to have an affair. I didn't want to have an affair, but you try telling that to teenage boys. Can you imagine what it was like at school? Oh, dear. And then afterwards, uh, Betty Ford compounded all of this when she gave an interview to McCall's magazine was talking about how. Her pension is for basically responding when people ask her questions. They've asked me everything, but how often I sleep with my husband? And if they'd asked me that, I would have told them. So, then of course she was asked when I asked her said. And the writer the writer writes when I asked her what she would have said had they asked her how often she sleeps with her husband. Betty Ford shot back as often as possible. And letters started pouring in. 28,000 letters to the White House and to papers all over the country. Here's Here's a representative sample in Chicago. Mrs. Ford's interview on TV amazed and shocked me. Immorality has been increasing, and Mrs. Ford's comments will add to the blight. Many young people will construe her remarks as a green light for fornication. Such remarks will not help elect Mr. Ford if he is the Republican candidate in 1976. Another letter. What kind of an example is Mrs. Ford setting? I think differently of her now. She and Jerry may as well start packing. I was shocked, writes another correspondent, to learn that Mrs. Ford apparently condones premarital sex if it is a, quote, worthwhile encounter. At one time, such actions were deemed fornication or adultery and a frequent cause of divorce. If Mrs. Ford's moral philosophy is representative of our leading citizens, God help the United States. And finally, another one. Now our first lady tells us that premarital relations are good. Can reduce the divorce rate. We are a decaying nation. New rights say Betty is wrong, writes the Chicago Tribune. First it was Nelson Rockefeller, then Henry Kissinger. Now the Republican right has found yet another reason to dislike President Ford. It's Betty Ford. According to Representative Phil Crane of Illinois, a leader of conservative forces supporting former California Governor Ronald Reagan, Mrs. Ford's openness and candor in expressing her views on marijuana, abortion and premarital sex will hurt Ford's chances of receiving the Republican nomination next year. Ah, and that's the point. So this is both a story about a woman of candor sharing her personal story, attaching it to the larger experience of women. And empowering those women by feeling like they weren't alone. It's also a flashpoint moment in the televisation of American politics. The first big interview for a first lady in that kind of a setting. But it's also about the change in the Republican Party. As the new right comes into ascension. The new right arguing on two fronts. One, that Kissinger and Nixon and Ford were too soft on the communists. And that there was a moral laxity. That should be upheld by national leaders and was not being upheld. So you know about that from our conversation in previous whistle stops and in the much greater detail that I go into about the Ford Reagan fight in the whistle stop book, which you all have and are buying for your loved ones. Uh, but this moral component of the new right is important because it gives rise to Phyllis Schlafly, who is one of the most important warriors for the moral component of the conservative movement. Just a couple of more reactions before we move on to Phyllis Schlafly to give you a sense of the of the dividing line that's now appearing in the Republican Party. It shocked the hell out of me, said Clark Reed, who was the Mississippi Republican Party chairman. In my part of the country and in my church, we take a dim view of this sort of thing. It's appalling. I don't think this immorality is so widespread as the news media implies. She made a hell of a mistake. The LA Times editorial is this way. It is safe to say that millions of parents if not accepted the inevitability of an America in which 18-year-old girls unabashedly share apartments and sleeping bags with their boyfriends. These parents are still fighting a rearguard action against what they see as a disastrous decline in moral standards, and they presumably do not welcome a situation where their daughter can say, Don't be so square. If it's okay with Mrs. Ford, what are you so uptight about? The question is how many Americans are on which side, and do they feel strongly enough about it to influence their vote? Fifteen months hence. So, fifteen months hence... It's now a part of the election, and Phyllis Schlafly comes riding in, sounding the moral note. Phyllis Schlafly's main job was her opposition to the ERA. So there was the ERA buttons that Betty Ford wore. Phyllis Schlafly wore stop ERA buttons, and stop stood for stop taking our privileges. She believed, basically, that that equality between the sexes violated the authority God gave husbands over their wives. As Ephesians, as Paul advises in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. She also said that the ERA would, would destroy the institution of marriage, and as a conservative who mistrusted Washington, she thought that the ERA would give the federal government too much power, and also she felt like it got in the way of the free enterprise system. So here you see women's politics, particularly with the ERA, channeling through all of the conservative principles about the control of government the family and the values she Phyllis Schlafly helped use the ERA to rally grassroots conservatives particularly women so and she she in doing so she used some very colorful language about the unkempt the lesbians the radicals the socialists and the government employees who are trying to amend the United States to force us to conform to their demands. She was waging a war to, and this should sound familiar, quote, keep America good. So as the founder of the Eagle Forum, she joined the battle against the feminists and specifically against Betty Ford. And so how did this battle between Phil Shaffley and Betty Ford play out over the ERA? Well, it took itself all the way to the Republican Convention in which women lined up either on the Phyllis Schlafly side or the Betty Ford side. Here's a quote from an Alabama delegate, a woman who is interviewed while she's getting her hair done, by the way. My husband is responsible for any bills, I assume. He's obliged to get me a fur coat if he can afford it. And another delegate uh, says, all of us would rather stay home and care for our husband and children. That's the divine law. So we start to see a split here in the Republican Party. One of the cartoons at the time shows an elephant up on a uh, chair screaming, eek, and off to the side is a much smaller Betty Ford, who is uh, holding a little piece of paper that says sex. So the elitists and the new city dwellers thought that this was all kind of moral prudes on the Republican side. What they didn't know at the time was that the people they were defining as the moral prudes We're taking over the Republican Party. Nevertheless, Betty Ford stuck with her principles, and she made her case on candor. I know I can't lie, said Ford. It's just impossible for me to lie and look at anyone in the eyes and talk to them. This is my problem. If I did lie, I'd probably forget what I said and then turn around and tell the truth again. So I figured there's no sense in it. What this 60 Minutes episode is and what it created and started is more, though, than just a gaffe that causes a political split among people trying to gain power within a conservative movement or Republican Party. It is about candor in an age of secrets and particularly about Betty Ford's personal journey coming out of her own personal trials. As one biographer put it, by being herself, she made it easier for millions of people to be themselves. And I guess my point is that she wasn't simply being candid about these ideas because it was the time. She was being candid in the service of breaking rigid social structures that had kept women penned in and that had, in fact, kept her penned in. And that's why we go back to that mention of seeing a psychiatrist, that notion of imprisonment. That's the personal story at the heart of that interview and of her story. And I'll just read now from her autobiography about why breaking out of the rules that were set for you was such a powerful and important thing for her to do so in her autobiography the times of my life betty ford describes a period when jerry ford is still just a congressman and is constantly on the road she's caring for her house full of kids he's constantly working and she's feeling the pressure to both take care of the kids and prepare and keep life going for him Where he was concerned, I had an inner clock, she's talking about Ford, if his plane was due at National Airport at four o'clock in the morning, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning to will that plane down. He could be home from the airport in 20 minutes, and I would lie there totally alert until I heard the downstairs door open. I knew he'd be exhausted, wouldn't want to talk, but I'd listen for the door and the sounds of his suitcase being put down. They were always left in the hall, and his footsteps starting up the stairs, and then I'd roll back over and go back to sleep. By the time he picked the note off his pillow, I'd be dead to the world again. That just gives you some sense of the attention, affection, connection to him, but also this sense of separation. She jokes about it elsewhere in the book. I was resentful of Jerry's being gone so much. I was feeling terribly neglected, but I didn't let myself know these things. Sometimes a true word might be spoken in jest. One night I rolled over in bed, saw Jerry beside me and said, what are you doing here? But mostly I bottled up my misery. This is Betty Ford talking about her life when he was a congressman and then she writes and one day the bottle broke I've asked Susan to tape what she remembers about what happened this is her testimony I'll never forget it I was eight years old and daddy was on the Sequoia with President Johnson and mother was in a room crying and very upset about something and I ran and called Clara and Clara came she'd been across the street and settled mother down and got hold of daddy and he came home and while he was in seeing her and the doctor Clara pulled Steve and me outside she said that mother was very sick And she had to go to a psychiatrist. At eight years of age, you can't handle that. I thought, well, my mother's a lunatic. I'm highly embarrassed. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, where I was supposed to go. I was scared that mother might fall apart in front of my friends. Here's Betty Ford again. The collapse had been a long time building. I'd felt as though I were doing everything for everyone else, and I was not getting any attention at all. I was so hurt. That I'd think I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive to the beach and nobody's going to know where I am. I wanted them to worry about me. I wanted them to recognize me. I wanted them to say, well, my gosh, mother is gone. What are we going to do? I started seeing a psychiatrist twice a week. He was a sounding board. I could tell him all the problems I couldn't talk to anybody else about. My back hurts. There's dope in the schools. Jerry's away. It siphoned off the pressures. I could talk out my feelings of frustration. Up until then, I'd thought I should be strong enough to shoulder my own burdens not carry them to somebody else. This is the larger personal story of Betty Ford. The reason candor is so important, it's not just she's a breath of fresh air, she tells it like it is. It's that this was survival for Betty Ford, who had lived for a period of time and broken down under the pressures of being the traditional sort of 50 styles housewife. She would go out of the White House kind of on the way she came in. On her last day in the White House, Betty Ford was passing by the cabinet room with David Hume Kennerly, the White House photographer, and she saw the huge oblong table stretched out in the empty room. And she said to Kennerly that she had always wanted to dance on that table. So, before she left the White House that day, she took off her shoes, bounced up on a chair, and then leapt onto the middle of the oblong table Table and sort of struck a dancer's pose, dodging the ashtrays and notepads and the and the chandelier. The Martha Graham trained dancer put one hand on her hip, uh, extended the other upward, and the picture is captured by David Hume Kennerley in her last day at the White House. This woman who had come in saying she was going to do it her own way, and on the very last moment of the last day did it her own way as well. We'd love to hear what you think uh, about Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcastslate.com at or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the words. Uh, spread the words or word. It can spread just a word or several words. Head over to the iTunes store. That's iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Liktai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who has helped usher in a new era of candor after our long national nightmare. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. Thanks for listening.